Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. Open up your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 9, as we continue to look at the Beatitudes and continue uh, to go through the Sermon on the Mount and consider uh, what Jesus is teaching about Kingdom Principles for Kingdom Citizens. And as we have already seen, Jesus has outlined for us not just things that we should do, but the people we ought to be. The things that Jesus is mentioning here in the Beatitudes are, are things that, not rules to follow, but it is a state of being in which we are to find ourselves in order to be the kind of people that are worthy of God's kingdom. And so, so far, we have seen blessed are the poor in spirit. And all of these things, as we consider them, are totally opposite of the philosophy of this world. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And while the world might teach that you are going to be happy and your life is going to be blessed if you have high self-esteem, right? Jesus says, no, blessed are you when you realize that you have nothing to offer God, but you have everything to gain from His mercy. Blessed are you when you realize that you're not something special, but, but you actually mourn because you realize that you are broken. Blessed are you when you don't exercise your power over people in order to show them how authoritative you are, but blessed are you when you have power, but you bring it under control in order to serve. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, who recognize that you're broken and the only solution to your problem is the righteousness of God. Blessed are you when you are merciful because you have already recognized your own sin. You've already leaned into the righteousness of God and now you are merciful and you extend the same grace that God has already extended to you. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are you when you desire to align your will with God's. And after each one of these things, Jesus says over and over and over again, but he phrases it in different ways, that your reward is the kingdom of God. This is the kind of people that make up God's kingdom. And so we come this morning to the last two Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers and blessed are those who are persecuted. We understand what it means to be blessed if you're a peacemaker. That makes sense to us. But blessed are the persecuted as well. And so let's go before the Lord in prayer as we consider what He has for us this morning, considering these final two Beatitudes. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for the time that we're able to spend in Your Word this morning. We're thankful for the transformative power of the truth that you have laid out for us over the previous several weeks. And Father, we pray that you would guide us this morning as we conclude uh, the study on the Beatitudes and how we ought to be characterized, not just things that we ought to go out and do, not just things that we can check off a checklist, but Father, these are our characteristics that you would have for us to be. 
And Father, there is no way that we can be these things without the transformative power of your word in the gospel. And Father, we pray that you would uh, move this morning among us and that you would incline our hearts to humbly accept your truth. And Paul's in Jesus' name, amen. On October 2nd, 1946, Franklin D. Roosevelt addressed the United Nations saying, the United Nations represents the moral conscience of mankind. It is a great force for peace, a force which no nation, however powerful, could ignore or wish, or wish away. This great organization is dedicated to the promotion of world peace and to the safeguarding of the rights of all nations and all people. And here we stand in 2023, almost 80 years after he made this statement. And let me ask you this question as we begin this morning. How does that statement land on you this morning? As Franklin D. Roosevelt stands before them and says, listen, after the establishment of the United Nations, there is no nation, however powerful, that can stand up to the might of the peace that we will enforce. And since then, we have seen the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, the Soviet-Afghan War, the Falcons War, the Bosnian War, the Gulf War, the Rwandan Genocide, the war in Afghanistan, the Iraq War, the Syrian Civil War. And these are just ones that make major, major headlines, right? Not to mention the small skirmishes that happen every single day across the globe. Actually, I would argue that since Franklin D. Roosevelt made that statement in 1946, there has not been one day of peace since. Really, since sin has entered the world, there's not been one day of peace. And despite the abundance of good intentions, and despite all the efforts of man towards peace in modern times, it's difficult to deny that the world is not any more peaceful today than it was 100 years ago. Economic peace, religious peace, racial peace, social peace, family peace, personal peace, all the different types of peace that we desire and long for, yet all the different types of peace that also seem to elude us. Instead, what do we see? We see marches of people that oppose certain things, rallies to object, protests, demonstrations, riots, and wars. And even sometimes we're told that these riots and wars are peaceful. But we know the truth. We know that they are not. Disagreement and conflict seem to be a hallmark, a norm in our society and time. And there is an urgent need for peace. We see this. I just went on to CNN.com just a couple days ago just to see what is it that we're talking about. And the first thing that pops up is... Putin places nuclear uh, preparations near Bosnia. The very first thing, conflict, right? There is an urgent need for peace. But why is it that no matter how hard man tries, we can never arrive at a place of peace? Perhaps the main reason is because the world has no idea what peace is. I mean, think about how the world promotes peace. Perhaps the main reason the world seems to uh, avoid peace is because it seems to praise peace while it doesn't actually pursue peace. In the world's eyes, 
what is the idealistic hero? In the world's eyes, when they lift up their heroes of world history, one thing that most of them have in common is that they are soldiers, warriors, conquerors. And even as we even make up make-believe stories about peace, right? Think about Marvel and the Avengers. That these people would bring peace to the world, these super-powered people, right? That would use their might to make sure there was peace. Is a forced peace really a peace? In the world's eyes, the idealistic hero is powerful, often self-seeking, cruel, proud, aggressive, oppressive. Someone who doesn't take no for an answer and makes sure that conflicts doesn't break out and achieves this by force. Even think about the time of Jesus. During the time of Jesus, the Romans were actually proclaiming that they had achieved a great world peace, the Pax Romana. But how did the Romans achieve peace? The Romans achieved peace in the same way that Marvel proposes that the Avengers achieved peace. They achieved peace by stationing soldiers, and if you dared to step out of line, they would wipe you out. We'll take a look later on today, or this morning in our message that that's one of the things that truly did keep people in line. That's one of the things that actually led to the crucifixion of Jesus, the fear that perhaps Rome would step in and squash you. And so there was a peace, but was it a true peace? No, it was a forced peace. I mean, no wonder we have such a problem in our pursuit of peace. Yet as we continue in our study on the Sermon of the Mount, we see that the seventh beatitude calls God's people to be peacemakers. As kingdom citizens, we are part of God's plan to restore the peace that was lost at the fall and has never been seen since. The peace that Jesus speaks of here has nothing to do with the world's view of peace. It has nothing to do with politics nothing to do with League of Nations, nothing to do with peace treaties, but like the other attitudes, it seeks to bring about a profound change, not by outward actions, but by a transformed heart that influences our behaviors. And unlike the laws of man which force you to conform, we have the Beatitudes of God, the will of God for us, is that we would not be conformed, but that we would possess a transformed heart, which willingly chooses to be peacemakers. And so as we conclude our study on the Beatitudes, let's go ahead and read together Matthew chapter 5, verses 9 to 12. Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. As we close out our study on the Beatitudes, this morning we will see God's call on all of our lives to be both peacemakers as well as to receive the persecution that comes as a result 
of being peacemakers. And so first, let's consider what does it mean for us to be peacemakers? As Jesus first says, blessed are the peacemakers. Well, if we're going to understand uh, what Jesus desires for us to do in being peacemakers, we must first understand what true peace is. And so what is true peace? One thing we know about peace is that Jesus plainly says that he brings peace. He says in John chapter 14 and verse 27, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, but, he says, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The kind of peace that Jesus gives has nothing to do with the peace as the world understands it. And so the world's peace, as we look at how the world defines it, simply means an end to the conflict. It's something that we all recognize has never really existed in world history since the fall of man. Actually, there are some people that say that this is what peace is. Peace is when men take a moment and reload their weapons. The world simply says, hey, peace is when we stop all the fighting. But even when we stop all the fighting, all of the things that cause the fighting still exist. So Jesus says, my peace I leave with you, but not as the world gives. My peace is profoundly different than the peace that the world gives. So what is God's peace? One thing we've already recognized about the Sermon on the Mount is that it's God's kingdom principles for kingdom citizens, but the people whom he was speaking to were Jewish. And the Jews have a very distinct idea of what peace is. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom, which we have all heard before, which simply translated is peace, but it carries with it a, a deeper meaning. It talks about peace, but peace through wholeness. As a matter of fact, as the Jews understand world history, they understand it to be that the world began. It was created by God, and it was placed in a state of shalom, a state of wholeness. It was complete. And with the sin of Adam, it was broken. And so, to be complete, to be in shalom, to be in peace, to be whole, was to live in a world that did not have conflict because it was aligned with the righteousness of God. The Jews understood world history to be beginning in a state of peace and to end in a state of peace when Messiah comes back and he returns and he brings that ultimate state of peace back to the world. And we as Christians would agree that that is the trajectory of the Bible, that God created the Garden of Eden, and in the Garden of Eden, it was whole, it was complete, it was shot through with the righteousness of God. It was at peace. But that peace was broken as Adam defied the will of God for his life. And ever since then, the world has been striving to get back to a place of peace. Totally unsuccessfully. <laughs> Because the problem is that man himself is broken. He is not whole. He does not have the righteousness of God. 
So the first thing that we recognize about God's peace is not just taking a step back from conflict, but rather it is taking a step towards restoring righteousness. God's peace is not passive. God's peace is active. We see this in James chapter 3 and verse 17. It says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. The wisdom that God provides does bring peace, but before it brings peace, it is dedicated to truth. It is dedicated to the purity of God's righteousness. It is dedicated to reality. If two people stop fighting, it makes absolutely no difference if both of those people are not reconciled to one true reality. And so, God's peace seeks to restore righteousness. God's peace is active and not passive. Jesus uh, mentions this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, says that He came to establish peace, but He also says, do not think that I come to bring peace on earth. I do not come to bring peace, but a sword. You say, what in the world? <laughs> the whole Jewish idea was that the Messiah would come and He would reestablish shalom. He would reestablish peace. He would make the world whole. He would, he would conquer the wicked. What, what is Jesus saying when He says, I have not come to bring peace? Doesn't the Old Testament refer to Jesus as the Prince of Peace? And what Jesus is, He is completing. He is rounding out His definition of peace. He says, I'm not coming to bring a, a reduction of conflict. I am coming to restore your relationship to God. And your wholeness with God might actually cause conflict between you and somebody else who continues to be at conflict with God. Jesus' primary definition of peace was being aligned with the truth and the righteousness of God, which Jesus says might actually cause division and actually is guaranteed to cause division between us and those who don't align themselves with the righteousness of God. And so Jesus says, listen, peace is not about just getting along. It is about pursuing and being in unity with the righteousness of God. We see Jesus play this out in His life as Jesus is not afraid to call people out for their sin. As we see Jesus discussing the gospel with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verses 21 and 22, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor that... <clears throat> then when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we worship. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. And this is Jesus' response to her right after she changes direction in the conversation. Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, and he brings to her attention the fact that she is out of alignment with the righteousness of God. He says, if you think that I am the Messiah, I want you to go, and I want you to get your husband and bring him here. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. He says, I know. You're, you're not married. You've actually had five husbands, and the guy that you're living with is not your husband. And she goes, uh-oh. And she, she decides to change the subject and says, who's right, Jesus? The Samaritans are the Jews in where they worship. And Jesus actually doubles down in telling her that she's wrong. <laughs> and says, actually, you are wrong. <laughs> 
The Jews worship in Jerusalem, which is what God has commanded the Jews to do, what God has commanded people who, who want to come to him to do, but he also points out the fact that, hey, soon that won't matter because everyone who wants to be aligned to the righteousness of God won't go to a temple, but they'll come through me. And so Jesus is bringing about peace in this woman's life, but he's not doing so at the expense of truth. He's not coming to her and saying, hey, all is happy and well and good, and you can continue living the way you want to live. No, he comes to her and he says, the way you're living is wrong. Your theology is wrong. But it's okay. <laughs> if you repent of it and turn to me and align yourself with the righteousness of God. And so the peace of God is not just a removal of conflict, but rather it is the pursuit of the righteousness of God. And when multiple people are aligned with the righteousness of God, they will be at peace with one another. And so a person who is a true peacemaker must be willing to speak the truth. So now we know what peace is, but where does peace come from? Well, the Bible clearly tells us that God is the source of peace and that all members of the Trinity are participants in bringing about peace. We first see that the Father, God the Father, is the source of peace. We see this in many places, but we also see it in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. It says, For it pleased the Father that in Him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself by Him, whether things are on earth or in things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross." Where does peace come from? It comes from God, and God the Father is the one that is the source or the initiator of peace, and He has done so by sending Jesus, who is God the Son, who is the manifestation of peace. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once afar off, which is another way of saying you who are once far away from God, in conflict with God, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. That man's relationship with God was broken, and God the Father stepped out by sending the Son, and the Son is the one who is the manifestation of peace, laying down His own life so that we can be brought back into the unity of the righteousness of God. We also see the Holy Spirit as Jesus uh, ascends up into heaven. He says, I won't leave you comfortless, but I'll send another comforter who is the agent of peace, who's the one that allows us to bear the fruit of peace. And we see that this is one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And so one preacher put it this way, the God of peace sent the Prince of peace who sends the Spirit of peace so that we can live out the fruit of peace. Peace is being reconciled to the righteousness of God, and peace only comes from God. Which leads us to our final question about peace. If Jesus wants us to be a peacemaker, how can we go about doing this? How can we go about doing what presidents and kings and soldiers could never do? 
Well, we go about making peace by bringing people into unity with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, and it says, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, so God first initiated peace, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And so if you were to track the, the history of peace in the Jewish minds, right? That the world started in a state of peace, but yet Adam fell and, and man broke his peace with God. And of course, the desire to return to peace exists. So what does God do? Well, he sends the prophets who are the vo- voice of peace in the Old Testament. But what happens to the prophets? And this will lead us into our next point. What happens to the prophets? They are persecuted. They are rejected. In some cases, they are put to death. So what happens? Well, Jesus rises, God rises up another prophet, John the Baptist, who is the voice of reconciliation in the beginning of the New Testament. And what happens to him? Well, again, he's persecuted and put to death because of his position on truth. But then Jesus is the manifestation of peace. And he lays down his life so that we can be reconciled to the righteousness of God and establish peace in our hearts. And right as Jesus goes up into heaven, what commands does he give? He gives us the commands that we would go and that we would carry on the mission that God gave to the prophets, that God gave to John the Baptist, that God established through the life of Jesus, that you would go and make disciples, that you would go and be promoters of peace. God initiated peace by sending Christ to reconcile man to God, and God has entrusted the the responsibility of making peace between man and God to us. In the Old Testament, the prophets were the voice of peace. In the New Testament, John the Baptist was the voice of peace. Jesus was the voice of peace. And now the church is the voice of peace. Reconciling sinful man to a righteous God. The mission that God entrusted to Jesus, Jesus has now entrusted to us the word of reconciliation and the passage continues now then we are ambassadors for christ we are literally ambassadors of peace promoting the gospel so people can be reconciled to the righteousness of god now what is the reward for peace you know if if we're going to do something we want a reward and some of us might say right well, isn't it like, doesn't it cheapen it to do something for a reward? Actually, the Bible says that we ought to pursue our reward, but the reward that we ought to pursue is Him and His kingdom. What is the reward that we get for peace? He says in Matthew 5, in verse 9, He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for when they understand what peace is and they go about and they accomplish their mission of peace, for they shall be called the sons of God, which is the the ultimate declaration of peace. That you are not at conflict with God, but you are in the family of God. Brought back into reconciliation with the righteousness of God, you have the ultimate peace, the ultimate intimacy with God, that you are 
part of his family and one of his sons. And although we are ambassadors for peace, that's the, the message of the Bible, right? It begins with peace, it ends with peace. God sends people throughout to promote peace. And what we've already uh, discovered is that as those people come and they promote peace, what often happens is that because the type of peace that they promote is opposite of the peace that the world expects, those people are persecuted. And although we are ambassadors of peace, and all these things, all these beatitudes have led us to a place of peace, that you ought to be poor in spirit, that you ought to be mournful over your sin, that you ought to be meek, that you ought to be hunger for, hungry for righteousness, that you ought to be merciful, that you ought to be pure in heart, and all these things culminate in the characteristic that you go out and you promote peace. And when that happens, that does not mean that the world will accept your efforts. As a matter of fact, all of these beatitudes culminate in the final beatitude, which is this. The crowning jewel, the crowning characteristics of kingdom citizens is this. Blessed are those who are persecuted. That's the number one highest honor for kingdom citizens. You might say, wow. <laughs> All these things to be persecuted, and we might be tempted to view persecution as outward forces acting upon us, but as we have already observed, what God is calling us to do is to be a certain type of person. That these characteristics don't just ask us to conform our behavior, but they ask us to be what God has called us to be. And the same thing is true for this one. Jesus is not saying Blessed are you when people just so happen to persecute you. He says, no, this is who you are. And there's no great way to put it in English, but the word persecuted really is a uh, participle, a passive participle, which means that, that your heart so values who God is that if it means that valuing God invites persecution into your life, that your heart is happy to invite that persecution. Maybe the greatest example or the easiest example for us to understand would be the life of Moses. Moses was adopted into the royal family, but yet when Moses was given the choice between Christ and the riches of the kingdom, Moses gladly, Hebrews tells us, turns away from the riches of Egypt and turns to Christ and invites persecution in his life because he views Jesus as being more worthy than all the treasures of Egypt. And so Jesus says, blessed are you when your heart values Jesus that you're willing to turn away from the acceptance of this world. Blessed are you. Blessed are you when you are someone who is willing to endure persecution. Well, this might lead us to the question, well, why would we even be persecuted in the first place? 2 Timothy 3.12 clearly lays out for us, yes, 
and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Because the idea that we have of peace is totally opposite of the idea that the world has of peace. For example, I mean, imagine if we weren't persecuted, right? Uh, One preacher used this example. Imagine a man who accepted a new job in which he had to work very closely with especially profane people. At the end of his first day at work, his wife asks him how he managed to get along with these people, and his response is, you know, today went great. We got along really well. They never would have guessed that I'm a Christian. And so, why would the world persecute us? Well, it's pretty obvious, because we're so distinctly different from them that they can't help but notice, and they can't help but be uncomfortable, and they can't help but react. They notice that there's something different about your transformed life, your transformed heart. That since you behave like a kingdom citizen, they react strongly against it. And Jesus even lays out for us different types of persecution that we can expect. He said, blessed are you when your heart is inclined to receive persecution from the world because you value Christ For yours is the kingdom of heaven, and then he even doubles down. This is the the first beatitude where Jesus continues, and he explains a little bit more. He says, blessed are you when your heart is inclined to receive persecution because you value Christ. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. And Jesus outlines different types of persecution that we can expect to receive. He says, number one, you can expect to receive unreasonable hatred, that they hate you. And there's really no logical explanation except for the fact that your heart is so transformed that they literally are repulsed by your being. That's what the word revile means. This is the kind of hatred that they felt towards Jesus. We see the outward pouring of this hatred towards Jesus in Mark chapter 15 and verse 32 when they said to him, let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Was there any reason that the people at Jesus' crucifixion would revile him, would hate him? No. No. Jewish historians have actually written that they are amazed that there is even anyone left who was sick in Israel because of how much good Jesus did. But yet they hated him. Why? Because they were repulsed by who he was. That they hated him without reason. And when our hearts are so transformed by the power of of the gospel, we can expect the same. It says, blessed are you when they revile you, when they hate you without cause or reason. Blessed are you when they persecute you. Which points to persistent, purposeful abuse. Actually, another way it could be translated is not just the word persecute, but the word pursue. And it actually is translated that way in other uh, parts of the New Testament. It says in uh, Matthew chapter 23 and verse 34, it says, Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify. 
And some of them you will scourge in their synagogues and persecute. And there's the idea of pursuing them, being persistent, not just, not just being content with hating them, but you're purposefully seeking opportunities to abuse them. And they will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, even when they leave your presence, even when you chase them out. You hate them so much that you will persist in your abuse of them. That's what we can expect. Because the world is so repulsed by the kind of people that are transformed by the gospel. Which brings us to our final form of persecution that Jesus mentions is blessed are they when they revile you, they hate you without reason, they pursue you from city to city, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. We can also expect false accusations. We see this in the life of Jesus as well as in Acts chapter 24, verses 4 to 9, when the Jews were really intent on silencing the witness of the Apostle Paul. And they bring the Apostle Paul before uh, the Roman officials and they say, therefore, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us, for we have found this man a plague. We hate Why? Here's what, here's what they claim. He is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. What do they claim about the Apostle Paul? They say he's going everywhere, purposefully causing problems. But as you look at the missionary journeys of Paul, what did he actually do? He would go to a city, go into the synagogue, preach the gospel. They would hate him. He would leave. He would preach to the Gentiles. That would make them mad. And so they would then pursue him, chase him out of the city. And that's their view of the trouble that Paul was causing. Who was really causing the trouble? <laughs> the Jews who chased him out. But what did they claim? They claimed that Paul was the one going about causing trouble. And not only did they say that, but he is causing dissension of the Jews throughout all the world. He is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, why is that significant? We already briefly mentioned the historical context in our introduction about that statement. What would be significant about a Nazarene? There's really only one thing, actually two things in that time. <laughs> The one thing is what Nathaniel was amazed by when he, when he was told that the Messiah came out of Nazareth. He said, wow, does, does anything good come out of Nazareth? That's the one distinct thing about Nazareth. I don't think that that's what they're referring to. The only other distinct thing about Nazareth is that Jesus came from there. That Jesus was referred to as Jesus the Nazarene. Now, why would that be something that they bring to the Romans' attention? Well, we can see this in John chapter 11, right after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and what is the primary concern of the high priest? The primary concern of the high priest is that, look, this guy is obviously powerful. He even raises the dead to life. What will happen to us 
when all the people rise up and they follow Jesus. That's what they were expecting to happen. When everyone realizes the power of this guy who even raises the dead, what will happen to the Jews when everyone raises up and they follow him and not Caesar? What will happen? And Caiaphas says, well, the Romans will come in and they will bring peace. (laughs) What does he mean by that? They will come in and they will kill us all. And they will restore the peace. So Caiaphas makes a suggestion The solution to our problem, he says, is that we kill him. He's, we can paint the picture, he says, that Jesus is a revolutionary against Rome. What was Paul actually doing in his missionary journeys? Going from city to city, preaching the gospel, getting chased out, and doing the same thing in the next city. What do they claim about him? He's a plague a rabble-rouser, a revolutionary leader who is seeking to overthrow governments. Now, as you read through the Acts and through Paul's epistles, do you sense any of that? (laughs) No, but that's the claim. They will say, all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. So what is our attitude towards persecution? Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 12. He says, now considering that this is the culminating, crowning jewel of what it means to be a kingdom citizen in this world, when people hate you for my sake, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. He says, listen, kingdom citizens have always been persecuted, but don't worry about that. Worry about your reward in heaven. This world is passing away, but the kingdom of heaven will last forever. Blessed are those who are persecuted. This is a blessing for us. We see this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a man who built his house on a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. And although it may not look like it, the crowning jewel of what it means to be a kingdom citizen in this world is to be persecuted. And later on in, in his sermon in this passage with the comparison of these two houses, what Jesus is saying is, when you are persecuted, that is one of the greatest blessings that you can experience in this life, and here's why. He says, imagine that there's two houses and they look exactly the same. Actually, the people that built them think that both of those houses are great. But what is it that makes one house better than the other? When the floods come, one house falls, the other house stands. 
Blessed are you when you are persecuted. And when your house stands, that's when you know that you are a kingdom citizen. So as we conclude our study this morning, and as we've seen over the past few weeks, the Beatitudes build upon one another about what it means to be a kingdom citizen. Not just things that we ought to do, things that we ought to check up our checklist, but things that we ought to be, characteristics that we are to embody. And they culminate in the willingness to go out and to make peace on behalf of God and to endure the persecution that comes as a result. As we'll continue in this study next week, Jesus then goes on to say that it's these things that make you the salt of the earth. This is what makes you different. This is what makes you distinct. This is what makes you someone that will attract people into the kingdom of God. And our theme for this year is to be disciple makers and to build God's kingdom by making disciples. And as Jesus lays that out for us in the book of Matthew, these are the primary principles that are our guiding ideas for life. He says if you want to impact the world, if you want to leave a good a, a taste in their mouth, not, maybe not good, it might not be good to the world, right? But if you want to leave a taste in their mouth, if you want to be flavorful, if you want to be a light, the Beatitudes, these things that we embody, that is the way that we accomplish this mission. So as we conclude, how are we doing in being poor in spirit, mourning for our sin, being people who are under control, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, merciful towards others, pure in heart, peacemakers, and being willing to endure persecution because of the surpassing value of Christ. Without these things, we have no hope of reaching a community for Christ. But with these things, we have the very power of God as, as the book of Acts lays out for us to turn the world and for our purposes to turn Chapel Hill upside down with the gospel of Christ.